Well, as you walked in the sanctuary here this morning, (laughs) maybe you felt a little bit like those guys in the movie Hoosiers. And what you'll find is this is the exact same room you were in last week. Uh, I think you'll find that we're here for the same purpose as we were last week, which is to worship the living Lord and to be equipped to go out and share the good news of of the gospel. And that's why we're in the middle of our sanctuary seating project. If you're new to Wayside and you're walking in and saying, uh, what a mess, uh, what we're looking at right now is taking out the remaining pews that are on this side. So those of you who are over here in the season ticket holder section where the (laughs) pews are, uh, you can say goodbye to the pews because Monday morning the remaining pews will be removed from our sanctuary. Now, we've been able to give away about 70% of the pews to other churches' ministries, Even some of our congregation have taken them and will have them in their homes. And so uh, it's been wonderful to be able to uh, have those pews be used in other ways. But what it means is next Sunday, all of us will be in the temporary seats that you see over here. Several people have asked me, are these the new chairs? No, they're not the new chairs. Uh, This is not a bait and switch. Uh, The new chairs actually arrived in the port of Houston this morning from Columbia. And so they will be here uh, April 8th when they will begin installation. And so next Sunday, these pews will be taken out. Everybody will be in temporary seats. And the following Sunday, April 14th, two Sundays from today, uh, we should be in our permanent chairs. If not all of them, most of them will be installed by that date. So what that means is the installation will be taking place during the week when Good Friday happens, and we will not be able to hold Good Friday services here in the 410 Sanctuary. So we will be joining our Stone Oak family out at the Stone Oak campus. If you've never been out to our Stone Oak satellite multi-site at 1300 Evans Road, it's right next door to Barbara Bush Middle School, Uh, that's where you will want to be on Good Friday. And we are going to have three services out there, one at 4.30, one at 6, and the other at 7.30 p.m. So three services at Stone Oak on Good Friday, 4.30, 6, and 7.30 p.m. If you come here, uh, you can help with the chair installation because <laughs> we, will, we will not be having a, a worship service here at Stone Oak. So again, I just want to thank you all for all of your patience with the process uh, you've had a, a sweet spirit of unity. You've uh, really helped the process to go well. And I want to thank you for those who have given gifts. You've been very generous in doing that. People are still giving gifts to the Sanctuary Seating Project. And uh, it's, it's about creating more room in here. We'll have about 240 more seats in our sanctuary when, once this is done. And so that will allow more people to hear the good news of the gospel. So as we're continuing today in Luke chapter 24... We're talking about the gospel. We've been in the series in Luke for over a year now, and as we're coming to the end, we're at the heart of what the gospel is. We've seen in the last couple of Sundays where Jesus was crucified on the cross. The reason the Son of Man, the Son of God, the promised Messiah came was ultimately to go to the cross to pay the penalty of death for your sins and mine. And Luke told us about that. After Jesus was crucified and died, We saw last time that Joseph of Arimathea went and received permission to receive the body of Jesus, and he buried Jesus in his tomb. It was a fulfillment of the the suffering servant prophecy of Isaiah 53 that said Jesus would be with transgressors in his death and also with a rich man. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, the, the preparation of a body would be where they would take strips of linen, 
and they would wrap the body, and as they did so, they would use spices, embalming type of spices, because those tombs were often reused. The bodies would deteriorate. You can imagine uh, the, the smells from that, and so they would have these very fragrant type of spices that were used, myrrh and other things. And if you've ever done paper mache, you know where you kind of dip those strips in this solution, kind of an oatmeal paste, and you, you wrap it around like a balloon, and then when it's done, you pop the balloon, take it out, and there's this cocoon. And that's essentially what the burial was, these grave clothes that the women and others see in the tomb was a cocoon. Uh, because as they wrapped in and embalmed the spices in the middle of the folds, it would form this, this form. And the women, as they watched Joseph and probably Nicodemus and, and the others who were preparing the, the body, they said they're having to do it in a very quick, hasty fashion, and they wanted to come back and do a more thorough job. So after Jesus' body was laid in the tomb and the stone was rolled over, then the authorities, you'll remember, posted a guard. They put a cord and seal across to make sure nobody would uh, tamper with the tomb. And the women said, we're going to come back on Sunday. The Sabbath was Saturday. Sunday would be the first day of the week in Jewish thought. And so they were going to come back and finish preparing the body. And as they did so, they came that first Sunday morning expecting the body to be there. It wasn't for the first Easter sunrise service. They thought there was a body in the tomb. And what they found is the stone had been rolled away. And as they looked into it, they saw this cocoon of the grave clothes, the body wrapping and then the head wrappings that were separate uh, lying there. The, the clothing was there, but the body had been removed. And as you look at Luke 24, 4 through 9, it says, While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood before them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and, and to all the rest. Verses 11 and 12 say, But these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them, but Peter got up and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Now, as we look at what had happened in verse 12, and we're about to pick up what is happening in verse 13, there are other events that were taking place during this time. Remember, there are four gospel accounts. And as you look at John's account, he tells us that what happened is after Peter, and John was also with him. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the guy who ran there with Peter. It says that he looked into the tomb. He saw and believed. Peter's still perplexed. He doesn't know. So they go away. And Mary Magdalene, one of the women who had been healed by Jesus, had uh, demons cast out and others who loved him, she had come with the group, and she lingered behind at the tomb. And as she did so, she looks back into the tomb, and there she sees uh, these angels. And, and they, they tell her this statement, and then you remember she's weeping and wondering, well, who stole the body? What's going on? She's still confused. And then there's a, a person there that she thinks is the gardener. And she says to him, where have you taken his body? Tell me, I'll go and get it. And, and at that moment, Jesus says her name, Mary. And her eyes are opened. And she sees Jesus. Mary is the first person who saw the resurrected Lord in his, in his new glorified body. 
And as Mary is there, she sees this. Jesus says, go and tell uh, the others, I have to go to heaven to my father. And so she runs back to the room. Peter is there. We, we read there are the 11. Remember Judas, one of the original 12, had betrayed Jesus and committed suicide. He's gone. Others are there, it says, with them. Other followers of Christ, other women and men of the day who were there, they're all up in this upper room behind locked doors. They're hiding in fear. They're waiting for the authorities to show up. They think they're next. And so as they're hiding there, Mary bangs on the door. They, they, they let her in. She comes in and she says, he's alive. And they go, what are you talking about? And she says, you know, I've seen him. And that's when Peter goes, you're crazy. And as they run to the tomb, it wasn't to say, hallelujah, he's risen. They're, they're running there to see what happens. And so she says, I've seen the resurrected Lord. Now, Peter is the next one who gets to see the resurrected Lord. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 5, there it says, it says, Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So you have Mary at the tomb the first morning. Jesus appears privately to Peter. You remember why? Peter had denied Jesus three times. Peter was the rock. Peter was the guy that Jesus said, I'm going to build a church on you. And Peter had this massive failure. He denied Jesus three times. And so Jesus appears to Peter and in this personal one-on-one resurrection. Now, on Easter Sunday, we're actually going to be looking at his recommissioning in John chapter 21, where he recommissions Peter publicly in front of the other disciples. But there's this private one-on-one meeting. And so the next people who see the resurrected Lord are the ones we're reading about this morning, the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So as these events have happened, Mary has come back, Peter's had an appearance, and there are others, if they're not hiding behind locked doors, they're scattering. There are other followers of Jesus who have either said, we've got to flee the city in fear, or they're saying, we thought he was the one, but he wasn't. It was all a lie. The story's over, so we're going home and back to our lives. And this is where we pick up the story this morning in Luke twenty-four thirteen through 24. It says, And behold, two of them were going out that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were, take, they were talking with each other about these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all of the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body. They came saying they had also seen a vision of angels and said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women who had also said. But him they did not see. Aren't those ironic words? But him they did not see. He's standing right there in front of him, but him they did not see. 
Verse 13 says, they, they've left Jerusalem. It's that morning. They were there. They heard Mary and the women say, he, he's, he's, he's not there. He's alive. The tomb is empty. And, and they're going, we're leaving. And they head back to Emmaus, seven miles. Now, that's not a long way for most of us. But in that day, remember, the roads were rocky. They were up and down as they were traveling. And when you take the average speed that a normal person would walk and you factor in those things, it would be about a two, two and a half hour journey. So these two are walking along down the road, going back to their home. And as they're doing so, uh, suddenly somebody joins them. And it's Jesus. Now, they don't yet know. Uh, There are a number of factors as to why when we look at all the resurrection appearances, people do not see him at first for who he is. Our resurrected, glorified bodies are similar enough to what we look like here on earth, but they're different enough. People say, well, I recognize my loved ones in heaven, and the answer is yes. You will know the people you know here, but we are going to be different. We're going to be perfected. We're going to be glorified. Jesus' body, the book of Revelation says, we will see him standing as a lamb as if slain. He will have the marks of the crucifixion. We will see those glorified marks in heaven. But whether they're hidden uh, with what he's wearing or whether it's some other way that God is veiling their eyes at the moment, they don't recognize who he is. So he walks up and he says, what are you guys talking about? And Cleopas says, only what everybody else in the whole world is talking about. Everybody in this whole area. What, have you been hiding under a rock or something? And Jesus says, well, actually, I was behind a rock in this tomb. (laughs) And I was there, but I wasn't there because I descended to the depths of the earth. I ascended to heaven. But he doesn't say that, does he? What Jesus does is he, he listens. He listens carefully. You know, they say, don't you know what's happening? And Jesus says, well, yeah, kind of. I was at the center of it all. You know, I've experienced everything you're talking about. And, you know, when I read stuff like this, it, it, it really, I, I love seeing this because it's how God treats us, isn't it? We go to him in our prayers. We're complaining about something. God, don't you know what's happening in the world? Why aren't you doing something? He's like, I know it all. I see it all. I have a plan. I'm in control. And so, as Jesus says, well, tell me what's been happening. Cleopas says, well, there was this guy, Jesus of Nazarene, and and everybody knew he was amazing. He was a prophet. Uh, He taught things. He did things. And and then we started to think, well, maybe he's, he's more than a prophet. Maybe he's the one, the Messiah. We hear the word Christ and think it's the last name, but it means the Messiah. And, and we say, Cliff is saying, everybody started to think maybe he's the Messiah, the one to redeem us, the one to overthrow Rome, to set up the kingdom, to usher in uh, you know, what we've all been hoping and waiting for, the promises of God. But then our chief priests, our rulers, they turn him over to the Romans. And the Romans killed him. He hung on a Roman cross. He died. His body was taken down. He was buried in a tomb. And we thought it was over. But then this morning, the women go to the tomb to finish preparing his body. And they come back and say, it's empty. Well, not not quite empty. The grave clothes are there, but his body is gone. And we're all like, what's going on? And they, they start talking about how angels appeared to them and said, why are you looking for the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen, just as he said. And, and, and we're all confused. And we didn't know what was happening. And, 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 and here we are right now. Unbelievable, isn't it? And Jesus is sitting there going, yeah. 
Pretty amazing stuff. Look at how he responds in verses 25 through 27. O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read stuff like that in the Bible, I always go, what did he say? Luke, why? No, don't stop there. Tell us. You know why Luke doesn't record for us all that Jesus said? Because we have all that Jesus said. And we have all that the prophets said. We have all the promises, all the prophecies, the things that pointed ahead to the promised Messiah. Luke says, I don't have to write it down here for you because you already have it. Just look it up. Read your Bibles. As you read through the Bible, as you go all the way back to the beginning of of the Bible in the book of Genesis, what you'll find is the first promise of the coming of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15. The Redeemer was promised to come, and God revealed the plan. He said that the the Son of Man, the promised Messiah, would be one who would have his heel bruised by the serpent, but then he would crush the head of the serpent. And that speaks of the crucifixion where Satan said, I won. They killed him. They put his body in the ground. He received what looked like a fatal bite, and yet it was just a bruise, so to speak. And Jesus, in turn, crushed the head of the serpent. He defeated Satan. Sin, death, and Satan were defeated at the cross. I'm sure that as Jesus was talking, he took them to Genesis 22, where Abraham placed his only beloved son on the altar. He would have surely lingered over what we saw in Luke chapter 22 as as God revealed uh, to his people when they were slaves in Egypt that he was going to set them free through the blood of a lamb as he said you're to take and sacrifice a Passover lamb and take the blood and paint it on the doorpost of your heart as we saw back in Luke 22, uh, actually on the doorpost of your home. And how when the angel of death saw that blood, he would pass over. And we saw how as Jesus was celebrating the Passover Seder with his disciples, he, he translated and said to them, this was not the ultimate redemption. That redemption was coming through the perfect and permanent Lamb of God. The one that John the Baptist pointed to in John one twenty nine and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for all of us who are believers who have painted the blood of Jesus over the doorpost of our heart as we've received him to be our Savior, God will pass over us in judgment one day. He would have taken them to Isaiah chapter 53, this prophecy of the suffering servant that we've seen. Things I mentioned this morning, how Jesus was with transgressors in his death as he was crucified with two criminals, and yet with a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, as he was buried in the tomb. And all the intricacies that say, by his stripes we were healed. And so he takes them through that. He could have taken them through uh, Messianic Psalms like Psalm 22 and 69. And on and on, Jesus is unfolding the plan of God through the prophets revealed in the scriptures. And this two, two and a half hour journey is over like that. As these people are enamored and lost in wonder at what the word of God said. And as they uh, suddenly find themselves there at Emmaus, Luke twenty four twenty eight says, they, as they approached the village where they were going, he acted as though he were going further, but they urged him saying, stay with us, for it's getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. 
And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he began giving it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Now, Jesus wasn't serving communion to them like he had done in the upper room. Part of any time believers get together or Jews in that day, they would break bread. They would have fellowship and encourage one another. And whether at that moment as he breaks the bread and hands it out, they see the the nail scars in his hands or God allowed at that moment as they had been processing the truth of all that Jesus was revealing to them. And they said, it's him. And as soon as their eyes are opened, the text says their eyes opened and they recognized him. It was not just a recognition of his physical form, but they recognized that he was the promised Messiah. They said, we thought he was a prophet. And now they see him for who he is, the promised Messiah, the son of God, the one who had risen from the dead. And suddenly Jesus disappears Verse 32 says, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road and while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and they returned to Jerusalem and they found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. So they're there in Emmaus, two and a half hours away. It's, it's evening starting to fall and they're like, we've got to get back to Jerusalem. We've got to share the good news. And I'm sure they made the journey in record time as they ran the whole way. They get there and they say, it's real. But as they get into the room, as they're banging on the door and people open the door, they're, they're, they're listening to Peter over here. There's what's going on. And it says that Peter, remember 1 Corinthians fifteen five, he appeared to Peter, Cephas, before the rest. And so Peter's saying, it's true. I saw him. He appeared to me. And at that very moment, these two bust in and they say, it is true. It says in verse 35, they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and he said to them, boo. (laughs) Is that what your Bible says? It should, right? I mean, they're behind locked doors. They're scared. They're confused. And, And no, as Jesus shows up, he says, peace be to you. Peace be to you. Verses 37 through 41 say, but they were startled and frightened and they thought they were seeing a spirit, a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet and and it is I myself touch me. See for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet while they still could not believe it because of their joy and excitement. Have you ever heard something you say, it's just too good to be true. They're seeing him, but they're like, no, it can't. It is. uh." So it says they're still struggling to believe because of their joy and amazement. And he said to them, have you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. He says, I'm real. The fish didn't fall out on the floor. He ate it. And, and, you know, reading this, we would expect it to say, Jesus showed up. He said, here I am. And they go, oh, they breathe a sigh of relief and they break out into their favorite hymn and start singing, Christ is risen today. Right? But that's not what happens. It says they're scared. They're confused. They're trying to figure it all out. 
And remember, Jesus had told them all this was going to happen. The angels even said, don't you remember what he said? You know, when I read stuff like this, it, it brings me great comfort. Now, maybe I'm the only one in the room who's ever struggled or doubted it sometime. Am I the only one here? You know, you read something like this, and, and these are the first followers of Jesus. They're, these are real people experiencing real events. And if you're somebody who's here today and you say, you know, Roger, there are times I just struggle with my faith, and I wonder, is this really real? I hear people attacking Christianity and this and that, and I go, is this? There, there are times I see promises of God in the Bible, and yet I'm in the middle of a storm, and I, and I know God tells me these things, but sometimes it's hard to hold on to them. And if that's you, friends, it means you're normal. You know, God doesn't blast the disciples here. He doesn't rebuke them and blow them out of the water and say, you guys are the ones that I'm going to entrust to share the good news with the rest of the world. Oh, man, plan fail. (laughs) He doesn't do that here. Yes, there are times he rebukes their unbelief. But there are also times he's gentle. And if you're somebody here who says, well, Roger, I don't struggle. I got it all figured out. And, and, you know, I tell people, shame on them. You know, James says, you know, when you're doubting, that's a problem. So, you know, I tell people, well, read the rest of the Bible too. Because there's another book called Jude. In the book of Jude, it's a little book. In Jude 1, 22 and 23, the Bible tells us this. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others. Snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. When it says have mercy, some manuscripts have the word convince. And so what it's telling us is we're to be gentle and patient as we lay out the truth of the scriptures to those who are believers who are doubting or to the non-believer who doesn't yet know the truth. And as we do so, it gives us a warning. It says, be careful that you don't personally get pulled down into the pig pen of sin as you're trying to share the good news with others. And, And so what it tells us here is to be gentle and patient, to share the good news in a merciful, kind way. Last Wednesday, I was in San Diego, California. I was there with a group of 40 other pastors for a a three-day kind of strategy meeting for our the 1,300 churches in our denomination. And so, as I finished these uh, three days of meetings, I was there in San Diego. I was waiting to fly back to San Antonio, and um, you know how great air travel can be at times, and there are delays and things. So I had about a three-hour wait there in San Diego. And wanting to redeem the time, I went into the food court, uh, found a table by a plug. You know, those things are in short supply. And so I I was very happy when I could set up my computer, plug in my phone and and laptop and start working. And so I'm sitting there typing away. And and after a little while, this uh, lady comes walking up and she says, "Uh, could could I sit here with you? She says, I'd I'd like to share your plug. And (laughs) I said, you know, we're in this big public venue, sure, sit down, she plugs in her stuff, and as she's doing so, uh, remember we're in San Diego, California, Uh, she's also on her way to Colorado, I later found out, her name was Sarah, and Sarah was wearing kind of this um, ensemble of crystals, not a few, a lot, Uh, she was carrying this bag where she started laying out rocks and feathers and other things on the table, and 
I'm over here working on stuff, looking <laughs> at her stuff that she's laying out. And uh, Sarah uh, says, well, you know, I looked at all. I said, well, that's you know, some interesting. She said, oh, well, I live in Colorado, and I'm a, a spiritual healer. And I was here on a conference on holistic crystals. And, and yeah, I can see. I mean, like I said, she's covered in them. And uh, so she's telling me all about what she does. And then uh, she says, uh, what do you do? Now, usually at that moment, uh, there's always this decision you make. How much do you say right out of the chute? Do you say, well, I'm an investment counselor. I can help you figure out how to invest your life. Now, I just told her, I said, said, uh, I'm a pastor. And usually when you say you're a pastor, one of two things happens. They unplug their phones and they run. Uh, or the wall goes up. If you're in a, you know, they kind of turn to the window in the plane and start doing things. Or the other thing is people get real kind of freaked out. And, and they, they get stiff and they say, oh, I'm spiritual too. I've, I've been to church. And, you know, they, they start like confessing their life to you. <laughs> and uh, Sarah didn't do either of those two things. She kind of cocked her head sideways and she said, hmm, well, I'm not real religious, And uh, at that moment, I said to her, I said, well, Sarah, that's great because I'm not real religious either. And that made her cock her head the other way. And she said, but you're a pastor. And I said, yes, I'm a pastor. I said, but Sarah, being a pastor isn't being about religious, where we follow rules and rituals. I said, it's about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I said, can I talk to you about that? And so did I mention we had a three-hour wait? So for the next three hours, uh, we had a conversation where we opened the scriptures. Now, Sarah immediately said, again, I love interacting with people like Sarah, who are real, who are honest, and who will tell you where they are. And Sarah said, you know, I said, well, Sarah, a lot of what I want to share with you comes from the Bible. And she said, well, I just want you to know that I I don't think that the Bible is the only truth in the world. And she told me about numerous other things that she believes, including the rocks and feathers and things that were on the table before us. And I said to her, I said, well, Sarah, you know, it's wonderful that you believe those things help you to know truth. Because I said, in Romans chapter one in the Bible, it tells us that creation speaks of the creator. And I said, so you're right to look at things like this and say that it points you to God. I said, I believe those things too. And then again, because she wouldn't uh, give you know, the full authority of the word of God is the, the, the thing for us to talk from. I, I came at it a different direction. I said, have you ever heard of a person by the name of C.S. Lewis? She goes, C.S. Lewis, maybe. I said, well, he had a friend, J.R.R. Tolkien. And she says, oh, yeah, yeah, I know these guys. They wrote, they wrote Alice in Wonderland, right? <laughs> and I said, well, not really, but kind of, because they wrote Uh, some things that you've maybe seen that kind of tell a story through some interesting uh, metaphors and things. I said, C.S. Lewis actually wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And I said, his friend Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings. She said, yeah, I saw saw one of those. That was kind of cool. You know, had lots of spirit beings and things. I said, okay, so these two men, I said, they went to school together in Oxford. And I said, would you be interested to know that C.S. Lewis was a guy who at the age of 15 said that he was an atheist. He publicly declared he didn't believe in God. 
And he said he was an atheist. And I said, he went to Oxford later, a few years later. He had a group of friends, including Tolkien, who talked to Lewis about God. And they said, have you ever really looked at who God is for yourself? Because part of the conversation we had had to that point was, she was telling me all the things that are wrong with Christians and why she doesn't believe in the Bible and why she doesn't like Christians. And I said, you know, Sarah, those things, much of what you're saying is not actually in the Bible. And the way those people have been saying or doing things is not in the Bible either. I said, have you ever really read the Bible for yourself? I said, don't take... Uh, other people's words or the counterfeits out there, I said, I encourage you to look at the Bible yourself. And so I said, this guy, uh, Lewis, actually looked at the Bible. And at the end of his study, he found out who Jesus Christ was. And this was Lewis's conclusion. Now, I didn't quote this verbatim for her, but I want to read you Lewis's quote. When he was done with his study, he said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Because when I said, when we were talking about Jesus, she said, I like Jesus. I said, Sarah, I like Jesus too. (laughs) And so she said, he's just this great guy and he taught some good stuff. And so Lewis says he would not just be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this, either this was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Now, we had a conversation. I said, Sarah, do you understand why Lewis said he's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord? And so we started delving deeper into why that was the case. I said, I said, if Jesus was not the Son of God, the Lord, then we can't call him a good man because he wasn't. I said, it's nice that you think he taught some nice things. I said, but let's really talk about how good he would be if he was a liar, if he was not the Son of God. Because what it means is Lewis is right by saying he's on the level of the devil of hell. Because I said the lies he told would mean that there are millions and even billions of people who are facing eternity separated from God because they believed what this guy Jesus said. He said he was the son of God. And if he was not the son of God, Sarah, what that means is then he was at best a liar. And I said, when you think in terms of of why people are lying... um, you know, we, we got into a discussion of that, but I said, let's, let's talk for a moment about if he had not risen from the dead, because that's how he proved he was the son of God. And I, I said, Sarah, I'm going to share something with you from the Bible. Can I do that? She said, okay. And so I said, this is what the apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 14 through 19. He said, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So I said to her, Sarah, 
we have to make a choice. He was a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Now, I said, let's say for a moment he did lie. I said, why do you think people lie? And we talked through a couple of things, and I said, I said, it really comes down to two main things. People either lie to get something or to hide something, right? We lie to get something or we lie to hide something because there are consequences we don't want other people to know or we want to present ourselves better than we are and if the truth comes out. So I said, let's start with the first one. I said, what did Jesus get by lying and saying he was the son of God if he wasn't? I said, well, he got killed. He got hung on a cross. He died a brutal, horrible death for claiming to be something he wasn't. Now, think in terms about what we saw earlier in this series in the Gospel of Luke. What we saw in chapters 22 and 23 is that Jesus went through a series of trials. And you'll remember they were giving Jesus an opportunity to say, I lied. I'm not who I am. If Jesus had said, I'm not the Son of God, I'm not the Messiah... Or if he had just stayed silent, as we saw a few weeks ago, he would have walked free. But instead, Jesus said, I am the Son of God, and you will see me sitting at the right hand of glory. And he went through, and and, and that's when the high priest tore his robe and screamed, blasphemy. What further evidence do we need? And so Jesus, if he was a liar, had an opportunity to back out of the lie. Now, maybe what you're thinking is, well, you know, he had gotten so deep into the lie and he would rather die than have people mock him the rest of his life for being this liar. And, and, and I said, so even if that were true, what about the disciples? Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane earlier in Luke chapter 22? There we saw when the mob came to arrest uh, Jesus, the disciples were with him. And Peter, you'll remember, whipped out his sword. He, had made, he, he did that first little attempt at fighting, but then Jesus had put the sword away, and they all ran away. And then Peter, even the guy who was willing to fight, uh, later when he was in the, in the courtyard of the high priest, remember, the reason he denied Jesus three times is because three different times people came up and said, you're, you're one of his followers. Peter's like, don't know the dude. Don't know this guy. He starts cursing and yelling. I'm, I'm not one of them. So Peter lied to hide something, right? The other disciples had all run away. Where are the people right now when we're reading this passage? They're hiding behind locked doors in an upper room. They're scared. They're worried. So I asked her, I said, Sarah, do you really think people would die for a lie? Why is it that these disciples who initially were lying that they didn't know Jesus and were willing to run away and hide are now suddenly willing to die for a lie? As you look at history, it tells us of the original uh, remaining 11, another disciple, apostle was appointed with the group, 10 of the 11 were martyred for their faith. Only John lived in exile on the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. Everybody else ended up dying horrible deaths, including Peter, who was crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die the same way as his Savior did. And this is the guy who said three times, I don't know him. I said, what would cause Peter to change? What would cause these people one minute to be hiding behind locked doors? And and then when you read Acts, they're out in the street publicly telling everybody and getting arrested and beaten and ultimately martyred. Something happened, Sarah. What was it that happened? Well, they saw the resurrected Lord because they're not willing to die for a lie. Many of you here have heard the name Chuck Colson. Uh, Chuck Colson was at the center of the Watergate trial. 
And he was a a key figure in the scandal. He ultimately went to prison along with the other people involved. Watergate was when uh, President Nixon, you know, ended up resigning as president because of his break-in at the Watergate Hotel. And so Chuck Colson ultimately became a believer because he was facing jail. And if you read his book, and Colson says the thing that made him come to Christ, uh, well, let me read you his quote. This is from an interview that took place, and he said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it. Now, the interviewer, when Colson says, how? How does Watergate prove this? And he said, because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would not have endured it if it were not true. And he said, Watergate convinced me of that. Because Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and we could not keep alive for three weeks. He said, you're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years. Absolutely impossible. Why... Would men and women die for a lie? They would not. Something convinced them that Jesus wasn't a liar. Something convinced him that Jesus wasn't a lunatic. Remember, when Mary and the other women went to the tomb that day, they they weren't going for the first Easter sunrise service. They were going to finish preparing the dead body. When they showed up and they told uh, Peter and the others, he's alive. You know, Easter Sunday we say, he is risen, and we respond back. And so when Mary says to Peter, he is risen, they go, you're crazy. They said, this is nonsense. And they ran to check it out. And they found the women were not crazy. Jesus wasn't crazy either. He wasn't a lunatic claiming to be something he was not. And what we're reading today where he shows up alive and he holds out the nail scars in his hands and he shows them his feet and he eats fish, he says, touch me and see. I'm not a ghost. I'm real. I have a physical form. I'm flesh and blood, glorified flesh and blood that can pass through locked doors. I can appear and disappear at will. He says, I am real because I am the Son of God. I am the promised Messiah. Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Now, I wish I could tell you that the end of three hours that Sarah said, I'm ready to receive Jesus as my Savior, but she wasn't. What she said to me was, you've given me a lot to think about. And she picked up her stuff, put it in her bag, and we both headed our separate ways. She flew back to to Colorado, and I flew back to San Antonio. And I'd encourage you, just pray for this lady, Sarah. I don't know where she is or whether she will... Uh, come to faith this coming Easter in some service in Colorado. I hope that's the case. But for those of you who are sitting here this morning, who are listening to these things, you have to make a decision this morning. Was Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord? A liar, a lunatic, or the Lord? You have all the evidence that you need in front of you this morning. Eyewitness accounts of people who were there that said he is real. He rose from the dead. He is who he said he was, the Son of God. People who were willing to lay down their very lives and die, and they would not die for a lie. And so you have to ask yourself this morning, what is keeping you from coming to faith in Jesus if you've not yet taken that step of faith? 
I invite you to look at the evidence for yourself, to read the Bible, to come and ask questions if you're still not sure. I'll be here at the front. We have prayer leaders at the front. There are men and women you came with, friends, family members, neighbors maybe. Even if you're here without knowing anybody around you, just ask the person next to you, I have more questions. What about this, this, and this? And if they don't know the answer, they can come to us to help you find the answers. But if you're here this morning and you realize that Jesus is who he said he is, the promised Messiah, the risen Lord, and you've not yet taken that step of faith and received him, what the Bible says in Romans 10.9 is, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. God invites you to accept that gift of new and eternal life this morning. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. All you have to do is in the privacy of your heart and mind, say to God, I realize you're who you said you are, Jesus, the Messiah, the one and only Son of God who came, took on flesh and blood, and went to the cross to take on my sin, where you shed your blood to wash away my sins. And today, Jesus, I accept your death in my place. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If you'd like to receive that gift, I'm going to invite you to bow your heads now and simply to pray this prayer with me. You don't have to pray this out loud. Just say this prayer in your heart and mind to God. Dear God, I've made some mistakes in my life. And because of that, I'm a sinner. And I know, God, that you tell me in the Bible that the penalty of sin is death. I thank you, Jesus, that you took my place. That you went to the cross and you shed your blood to wash away my sins. I believe that you are who you said you are, the Son of God. And you showed it by rising from the dead. I believe that you are who you claim to be, the promised Messiah, and the one who gave your life, dying in my place to give me the gift of eternal life. And today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sins into you to be my Savior. I accept your death in my place. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for adopting me into your family. I pray these things in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be at the front afterwards. Others will be here as well. We would love to talk to you to make sure you understand that first step of faith you took. And for the rest of us who know the Lord is our Savior, we need to do as the disciples did and go out and declare the good news that the tomb was empty, that he's alive.